Well, we're in our last uh, part of this series called Jesus Is, and we, uh, we were following uh, the message of each week going with first, we talked about hope, then we talked about peace. We had Dave Winter who came in and spoke about peace, then we talked about joy last week. And our last subject uh, this week is talking about God's love. Um, often what we do is we, we interpret love in different ways. In our world, uh, we watch TV shows and we um, are, I think or what I would say the word is we're taught in our culture that love is, comes quickly. <laughs> if you see a, a show um, and it's only 30 minutes long, you find that a person meets another person and then by the end of the 30 minutes they're in love and they want to get married. And as it's a subliminal message to us as we're watching because when we're in our real life and we're engaging in relationships, we think that love must happen quickly. If you watch Hallmark Channel, it's all about love. Every, every, every particular story is similar in some fashion. Even my daughter who is nine years old says, it's the same story every show. Two people meet, it's all these strange little things and then they fall in love and they get married. I said, well, honey, at least it's wholesome. I said, I don't know what else to tell you. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a show mom likes to watch, dad has to be forced to watch and we just get into the love fest. It's a hallmark thing. But in light of it, uh, love is portrayed in some fashion like that. Um, in Greek culture, now we, we can say what we really love. There are things that we love today. We can say we love to be on the beach. If you like to go and you have to travel two or three hours. When I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, we only had to go 10 minutes down the road and go to a beach. We had four fronts so we can go to one of them. And each week we went, my parents would take us. Uh, they weren't the greatest beaches but or, the, or fronts, but at least they were something. I didn't have to travel two hours or three hours down in New Jersey from where I grew up. We had something. Uh, it wasn't beautiful, but it was something. But you may say you love a nice piece of steak. Maybe you love seafood. Maybe um, there's something that you love. You just love to go take a walk in the park. You love to be alone with your spouse. You uh, love when um, your grandchildren are around. You love when your children are around. You love this time of year because everybody comes to your home. There are many things that we love. Well, in Greek culture, they had five languages um, that would highlight what specifically our love um, one, number one, there's an heiress love. They call it a sexual passion love, erotic love. Number two, they have what we call as a phylos love or, or Philadelphia, where we get from the Greek word brotherly love. I don't know because when I watch Eagles games, I don't see any love there. Um, but again, a brotherly love, a deep friendship. In fact, they're the worst in all of football. I mean, it's, um, I'll never forget what they did to Kurt Warner when he was on the Cardinals and they open field tackled him while the, game, while the play was down. It was just foolish. Um, but again, that's me and my wife have to have those arguments about Philadelphia Eagles. And then you have Ludus, which is a flirting, playful love, is number three, flirtatious love. Number four is, is what we know as pragma, which is a longstanding love, a more enduring, long-established love, maybe equating a husband and a wife a father to a child or a mother, a parent to a child. Then you, there's one that's called a phi, it's a, a philiutic love, which is a self love. It's loving self. It's placing self above all things. Um, in the world and humanistic thinking, when you have to look 
to the world and what they would always make that phrase of someone's got to look out for number one. And often self-love means that I come before everyone else. Then you have the last one that I can mention, which is very familiar that we know from the scriptures is an agape love, a divine unconditional love. Now, why I share all these loves and why it's important is because at this time of the year, Christmas is a time where we tend to let bygones be bygones and love one another differently. It may be one, two, three days. It could be three weeks. We tend to love a little bit more. We let things go and we say, well, after Christmas, I'll deal with that. Let me love right now. Let me just think of someone and care for them and think what's best for them right now. Um, and Christmas time, we think about too because we think about the message of the gospel and that Jesus came to die, but Jesus came born, the first coming, for a purpose to die for mankind and to set them free from sin. We know that even the message of Matthew. He came as a humble king to save mankind. His love was displayed to offer to mankind a love. It's a rescue, for, a rescue mission for sinners. It's a supernatural divine act that no man could perform because it requires one to be perfect and it's sacrificial and it was done for the sake of sin and for the sake of mankind. See, what we have to understand is that before there's love, there's holiness to deal with. God sent his son to deal with sin because God could not look upon a, man, a mankind or a sinner because sin needed to be dealt with. Jesus had to be that perfect substitutionary atonement to eliminate that, to be a propitiation so now the father could look upon mankind, but that simultaneous holiness and love was working. But when we look at love, we often think of a benevolent love of God where God would not hold anyone accountable but simply offer love, and when he offers love, then if someone faults or someone goes wrong, it's okay. We just love them and we hope that by loving them, the fault and the sin will go away. But I don't think that's the message of the gospel. Often what we see in theological, what we call perspectives, is we see that God offers a benevolent love, but when he offers his son and the savior of the world comes, it does not, it does not rid the relationship, one must come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not as though he's covered sin and now anyone can come and no one doesn't have to recognize Jesus. That becomes inclusive and possibly universalism where everyone can just become a child of God. But see, God offers it in a common way but it's efficacious to those who trust in him. So when we understand the mystery of love, we understand that God offers the greatest love, but one needs to come and understand that God's drawing that person in. Because we, we have a misconception of love. The world gives us that misconception. Humanistically speaking, we have that misconception, but God has something different here. And so as we look at it, we have to understand that most would see today if you, if you would ask the question to anyone today, you would say, where is God? Does he exist? Does he care about you? Most would say, no, he doesn't really care about me. He's somewhere far in the heavens. He's not interested in relationship with me. Why? Most people will respond by saying, because I, I mess up too often. I'm not good enough. 
I, I just can't seem to do things right. I'm not holy. You would never look at my life and consider me holy. And so I'm never good enough. So the perspective of God's love is that he's far away and he only loves those who love him first. That's the world's perspective. And what we have to understand is that we know God loved us first before we loved him. The world's not seeing it that way. And so when we understand that God is far away, he really isn't. Because you and I know that he, he made himself known. He's revealed himself. He's manifested himself. We know that the transcendency of God, being he's far away in the infinitude of God, he's made himself imminent near to us through his son. So the message of Christmas is that God has offered himself and made himself near to us by offering himself his son to come and be born in a stinky old manger. Humble. A servant of the father. The father sent the son. So we have to understand that before we talk about love because many look at themselves with struggles and trials and insecurities and sure that God's far away because when we understand love here on earth in a humanistic, I have to do for you before you do for me. It's a conditional love. It's always based on conditions. But God is saying, I've got something greater than that. And so as believers, we need, to, we need to discuss this. We need to know that God has revealed himself, made himself manifest and known. But there's something even deeper than that. God can love us with this unconditional love because of the love that exists in the Trinity. What we understand is that they love one another. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit love each other and they love with such an unconditional love that one is not trying to go over another. And that love is so incredible that they said, you know what? The three of them said, we've got to do something about reaching creation. We've got to share this love. See, God can be just by shutting the door of heaven and saying, I'm still just. He could shut the door of heaven and say, I'm still love. He could shut the door of heaven and say, I'm still holy. Because God can't be less than holy, less than love, and less than perfect. So God didn't have to offer us, his mankind or creation, the love that he has for us through his son to prove that he's love. It's a confirmation, but not a proving. God doesn't have to prove anything. So we have to understand that in that social trinity that we talk about, the intra-trinitarian personal relationship that exists is offered now to us. And so we want to talk a little bit about that today. So as we're going to look at the book of John, 1 John, we want to touch on a passage, but in, throughout the book, it's, it's important to understand because John is known as the disciple that loved Jesus, okay? And as we look at this, we have to understand that if the message of the gospel is love, then we have to truly understand what it means. So here's the background in a, in a, in a, in a quick, brief I hope to be brief here in this background is that the writing of the epistle, just some background here. John, 1 John chapter 4, 11 through 14 is what we're going to work through. 1 John 4, 11 through 14. But let me just give you some background here. He was the sole remaining apostolic survivor who had intimate eyewitness association with Jesus through his earthly ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. That was a comment from one of my commentaries. I love that comment. He was the one left, apostle and all, 
There were earlier church fathers attesting of his time living in Ephesus during this time of his writing. So he's in Ephesus around 9095. There are some church fathers in later years that attested of his time in Ephesus. Ephesus known as a very uh, 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 inner, inner city but more pr- prosperous area where most would do most of their work commercial in that area, so he would touch in and work in Ephesus to try to expand the gospel, evangelize, start churches, go working over churches, and overseeing churches. So his extensive writing ministry started there, his extensive evangelistic campaign started there, and people sought to talk to him because of his direct relationship with Jesus on earth. He was known as the living and abiding voice of Jesus. So in his first epistle, John the Apostle writes letters to believers with a, with a knowing concern of false teachers. He wanted to communicate because false teachers were questioning whether Jesus was God. They were questioning his, human, his humanity with whether or not it was in connection with the Father. They questioned his deity. They believed that and these, what we would call at this time, first century Gnostics, which they weren't called Gnostics at this time, but they were considered first century Gnostics. And what they believed is that the humanistic part of Jesus could not be of God because he was of matter. And anything made of matter was evil. So God could not be, God could not send his son in the incarnate Messiah as both God 100% and God 100% human. So he couldn't be deity and human. It's impossible. And at this time, the church fathers of 300 AD or 400 AD of the councils, they didn't determine that just yet. So there was John as an apostle, as a shepherd, as an elder, as a leader, had to make sure that in the church of the faithful who were following him and the apostolic teaching, that they would not fall into this trap. But the false teachers were misleading people to believe that Jesus truly was not God. There was another thing about the false teachers. They lacked love. They didn't love people well. If people questioned their teaching, they would be offended quickly. They would respond and react. They didn't like the fact that people didn't agree with them. Therefore, what they did with the people they misled, they told them not to communicate with the faithful ones. And so there was a separation, an argumentative debate, which it caused a split in the church and a split in what we call Christianity of that day, and they just lacked love. So in the premise of what John is trying to write is that he's trying to defend the deity of Christ, and he's defending the love of God, because these folks didn't love well. And so he's saying, wait a minute, if you're going to represent God, If you're going to say you're a follower of God, you need to love well. If you're not loving well, then you're a false teacher. I mean, John kept it very real. As you can imagine, when you read 1 John, there are statements there that are are just, to us today in our 21st century, we would even consider being cold. Because his, his, his statements were, you are not practicing righteousness, you're not born of God. You don't love, you're not born of God. But what he was saying was, it's not that you may have a moment here, a moment there where you failed or you struggled. He's talking about a consistent, habitual practicing of unrighteousness. And when you practice unrighteousness, it derives from your heart. And where your heart is, is where your treasures is, Jesus said. 
And so if our heart is captivated by Jesus and it's transformed and changed, then the Holy Spirit is present. And if the Holy Spirit is present, then as you and I are walking with Christ, we'll exuberate, we'll exemplify the love of God. So Paul, John is trying to defend that. So as we look into this, we have to understand that's so important. So he's, he's trying to hide, why? Because the word love in his writing appears 57 times in the Gospel of John, 46 times in 1 John, and the Father sent the Son, or the Father sent, is over 40 times in the book of John. So this correlation of the Savior of the world and love was something heavy on John's mind. So John needed to defend that deity. He needed to defend love. He needed to defend virtuous thinking because these Gnostics were saying knowledge supersedes the deity, knowledge supersedes virtuous character. Listen to this in 1 John chapter 3. Just look over in verses 16 through 18. If you think of it, you go John 3.16 and 1 John 3.16 are similar. It says this, 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us. Isn't it interesting that John 3, 16 talks about for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we, now verse 16, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Well, the false teachers weren't doing that, nor were they teaching that. Verse 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, How does God's love abide in him? Then he goes, little children. Remember, Jesus said we must come to him like little children. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So he's bringing this premise, which is so important. So as we look at chapter four, verse 11, let's let's just look at, at that passage here because this is so important. It's tying in. It says this, it says, beloved, And in one version in the NET, it says, dear friends. It says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, verse 12, it says, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 13, but this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of the spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So let's look back at verse 11. It says, Beloved, and see John's community, an endearing love to, his, to the believers, unlike the false teachers. He's showing and demonstrating a relationship, a personal loving relationship. So that's John. John was the one who loved Jesus, was known to love Jesus. He's expressing that love. So his love for God and for believers is displayed just by that one endearing comment. He says, if God loved us. Now, understand this. There's a word in the Greek here that's not being translated here. Really, it should be saying, if God so loved us like this. Now, that word like this, okay, now this is in the Greek. It's not translated here. But in verse 11, like this would go back to verses 9 and 10. Let me read that, okay? This is how he loved us. In this, the love of God was manifested among us that God sent his only son into the world so that, so that a purpose clause, so that we might live through him. So it's that back to if God so loved us, let us love one another. In this love, verse 10, not that we have loved God, remember I said that earlier, but that he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So this is the manner by which he loved us. It's not as though we reached out to him, but he reached out to us. That's the agape love, the unconditional love. And so this love that God is offering to us can be a reality for us. Because when he says, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. Now, a few things here. In the Greek, this is a first-class conditional sentence. It has, it has a Greek word, ace, plus the aorist indicative, which means this. Reality is assumed for the sake of the argument. So reality in this so-called, what we call hypothetical if, is now reality. Because if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. And then you could say, well, Bruno, wait a minute. Do you realize who I have to love? You're asking me to love this person? You're asking me to love this person? I mean, like the way God does? I'm gonna leave that up to God to love that person. I can't love that person. There's no way you're gonna tell me to love my mother-in-law. You're not gonna tell me to love my cousin. You're not gonna tell me to love this neighbor. I mean, this neighbor is rude and angry and frustrating. I mean, you're gonna tell me to love that person? You're gonna tell me to love one of my brothers and sisters who I'd rather deal with an unbeliever than a believer? See, here's the thing. The reality of that statement is you can, but not, you and I can do it, but not in our own strength. See, what it's saying there is it's not in your own strength. It's not possible. Let me, let me go back to saying, if you or anyone came up to me and said, Bruno, you're gonna tell me I'm supposed to love this person? I'm saying, you can't. You're right, I can't, I can't. You can't, but God can. And he wants to do it through you. Because he wants to give you the privilege and the honor and the experience to see that love that comes and flows through you would help you as a Christian grow in your faith. When you see that God can do the impossible that you can't do or I can't do, that I can't love this neighbor, I can't love this family member, I can't love someone who's dear to me because I can't do it in my own strength, I'll react, I'll get frustrated. But God's saying, I can do it through you. See, that's what this statement means. This statement doesn't mean that you have to do it in your own strength. That's often what we do. We think God gives us the resources to love. See, I don't see that in the scripture. I see that God gives, moves in us and does the work through us when we submit. See, this is, this is what is classic about John. John had such an abiding, loving, residing relationship with God and his son that it all often became almost natural for him because of his dedication to God. So this is what he's saying here. Watch, going back to verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. Verse 12, this is important. Because what it's saying is that God is invisible. God is spirit. We don't see him with our visible eye. We can't see him. And so it's important to understand that God is offering to us that understanding that we can love someone and we can show forth the love of God that we ought to. Now, here's the word ought. Let me go back to the word ought. It's, it's stated in two other cases in the New Testament. Romans 13, 8, same construction in the Greek. It says, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So we ought to love. We should be indebted to love. We have the ability to love through Christ. Another thing, Ephesians 5, 28. Husbands ought to love your wives. Ladies, can I get a whoop, whoop? Uh, there you go, okay. 
I need to do that too because there's often when I don't love my wife well and I have to cry out to God. I'm telling you, transparently saying, God, Holy Spirit, Jesus, I need you to intercede to the Father on my behalf. I'm not loving my wife well. And I need you to help me love my wife because I can't do it in my own strength. See, this is the kind of love. He, he was saying the same thing. Husbands, you ought to love your wives because that's a commitment to it. And so that's why verse 12, he says this, no one has ever seen God. Now, where did John go with this? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Because he's saying this, if God is invisible and no one can see God, when are they going to see God? How is it going to be manifested? The reality is that the only God they're going to see through Christ is you and I. We're the billboard for Jesus. And if we love each other well, the world is going to say, wow, that's God's love. I love that. I want that. See, the one thing that attracted me to Christianity 30 years ago is I saw that love in a church. I saw it right in front of my eyes. I saw people enjoying being together. But what I saw was that people ran up to me and that Sunday I was there, they immediately took me in. And they demonstrated to me. And I was able to share my heart and bear my heart about all the struggles I was going through. In fact, a couple that I call my Italian, my Italian uh, spiritual parents are Vito and Joanne Colucci. Because they took me in and I call her mom. To this day, I call, hey mom. I refer to her mom because she became a mom to me. They took me in, they loved on me, they nurtured me, they shepherded me. And what they did is the pastor along with others did that because the love of God so exuberated through them, I wanted it. And I got saved that day. And it was incredible because that love, even though I didn't see God, I saw God through them. And that's what he's saying because no one can see God. God is invisible. Even Moses said in Exodus, no one can see God and live. Hebrews 11.3, the author says that the visible shows forth the invisible, both in creation and in his people. In Colossians 1.15, it says, Christ is the image of the invisible God. So both Christ and his people can show forth God. And what John is saying is in saying that God cannot be seen, but he can be seen through you and I. He can be seen through the love that we have for each other. And so verse 12, that's why it says, if we love one another, God abides in us. He resides in us. And his love is then perfected in us. And when we love one another, it's not as though we need to love God first, then love one another. God already resides in us. The Holy Spirit has deposited us until the day of redemption. But when we submit, it's a reciprocal love. When we submit to God, then his love is working in us. And then we're able to unconditionally love someone else. No, it's so hard. Almost impossible at times. It is impossible for us to love that way. I can't love that way. In my own strength, it doesn't happen. I desperately need the love of God. I need God. I need to abide in him. I need to remain in him. I need every day to, su to surrender to him saying, God, I need agape love working in me today. Because it's not in my strength. God never intended it for that way. See, the, 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 in, in, even the construction of the Greek is very clear that God abides in us before we can abide in him. 
God makes it possible. This is an assurance. This is a confirmation. This is not something that we have to grab every day. God offers it to us. It's in Christ. And here's in verse 13. This is what it says. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us the spirit of God. I was telling my students the other night when I was teaching, I said, you know what, before, before I came to Christ, because I wanted to make it really simple to them. Before I came to Christ, this book made no sense to me. I was a car salesman trying to read the Bible. My, I told you this before. My, my, my boss came in and said, what in the world are you doing reading the Bible as a car salesman? But I said, because I'm, I need help. I'm hurting. I'm empty. I want to kill myself. This is ridiculous. I need help from God. He's like, well, get that away. You don't do that here. But even when I was trying to read the Bible, it made no sense to me. Every time I tried to read the New Testament, I didn't get it. It just didn't, the light didn't go on. But when I got saved in 1989 of January, and this family of love of God, of these people came and loved on me, and Vito and Joanne, all of a sudden I opened up the Bible and it, wow, this makes sense. Because the Spirit of God who came in me started that relationship revealing Jesus to me, as he was stated, and the Father. See, that's where the evidence is. That's where the confirmation is. That's where the process is. That's why God offers that to us. But look at now, verse 13 and verse 14, we see the Trinity. Now watch this. You see Holy Spirit in verse 13, but now here's verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So now we see the evidence of the Trinity, both Spirit and, and the Father and the Son coming together to testify to John. John is now testifying to the faithful and even to the false teachers saying, whatever you're teaching those people, it's wrong because it's not God's love. See, what he's offering here is this. He's saying this. He said, this is apostolic teaching. This is where he's going in verse 14. He says, we have seen and testify. Now watch, that's important. Why? Because it's not just a bunch of intellectual words. It's not, it's not knowledge that oversees virtue. See, where the false teacher was, knowledge supersedes God and deity. So now when man says, or the false teacher says, we can tell you who God is and who deity is. It's not Jesus. So now man becomes, in its rational thinking, supersedes God. See, what he's saying is that John's saying, no, has nothing to do with man. I can't determine who God is in my own finite self, but in the infinitude, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I know, I have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son. Not only because he walked on earth with Jesus, but because he was able to testify in his heart because the Spirit of God was working in his heart. Look with me to chapter one of 1 John, verses one through four. This is what John was saying. This was the premise of why he wrote this letter because this is what he was trying to tell the false teachers and all the Christians around him. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, Jesus, the life was made manifest revealed, manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim as you have also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. So if God loved us this way, like this, then we ought to love one another. This is what he's saying. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Interesting, he says the same thing, perfected in us, same thing. So what's been perfected in the people of God is God's love for them and then them transferring that love they receive from God to one another. That's when the perfection of the church is at work. It's completed, meaning. It's, and it's this final, able to reach the world for the kingdom of God. Because he was able to testify in chapter four again and saw and testified that the father sent the son. Now, that word sent in verse 14 is a perfect tense, meaning it's a past action with continuous results. So it's not an historical event only to the world. It's an event that changes the life of a believer and continues because the spirit of God lives in us. See, the spirit of God is here to continue to allow the life of Christ to live in us. It's alive. It's not dead. It's not something from the past. It's not an event. It's something that's alive in us every day. When we submit, God wants to do a work to expand the kingdom of God. It's not about us. Look, I have my toy here that says that. When we spend time with God and abide in him and love on him, our love for him increases and increases and increases. All of a sudden, it doesn't matter what happens to us, our love for God is awesome. And we're just in God, and God is in us, and in Christ. And I mean, the building can fall on top of us, and we can say, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that I have insurance, or praise the Lord that I'm still alive. But what it is is that when we try to figure it out ourselves, try to figure God out, try to gain more knowledge, and try to contain and control our lives, all of a sudden, God decreases. And our lives with Christ just comes like this. We don't even know it's happened. It's, it happens to all of us. It happens to me often. I have to be reminded, oh, wait a minute. I've got to spend more time with the Lord. Now, it's not as though God's love is always like this for us. But that relationship grows. It has nothing to do with his love for us. It's settled in. God loves us from the very beginning. But I'm talking about that relationship. And then when we spend that time and we have that relationship with God, guess what? We're going to share this with the world. This is, this is kind of like in a globe. We're sharing it with the world around us in our immediate context, and it could be anywhere we go. But this is the influence that we could have for the kingdom of God, the love of God. See, Jesus didn't just come to be born in a manger so we could sing great Christmas songs and have beautiful lights and decorations and so we can give presents to each other. I mean, those are all nice things. Don't get me wrong. I love, the kid in me loves to be having Christmas. I love the food. I love everything. I shared that last week. But God wants this to be greater. He wants our influence for the world. And it's not the way we think we should do it. See, what I love about God is that the influence of the world comes in all shapes and sizes and fashions. Sometimes he removes things that we love because he's a jealous God. And he says, wait a minute, I want this space in your life. Sometimes this, this space in, we love things like this from the world. God's saying, I want this kind of love with you. I'm jealous. I want a relationship with you. See, the influence we could have is great. 
The savior of the world came for that purpose. Three things I want to share with you that, we, that God wants to, I believe, are three things. How do we live now? How do we live if we have this love? How do we display the invisible God? How do we make that influence in the world? One is we have to remain Christocentric. The savior of the world came to save mankind for sin. We must be established and known that that missio days offered us. Let's live for Christ, in Christ, not for self. So it's got to be Christocentric, always in Christ. Everything we do is for Christ and in Christ. Two, let's be about the community. Let's think about others before ourselves. The social trinity exhibited relational community, communal love. As we abide and reside in his love, we are able to then love our brothers and sisters well. So when, we're in, when we have this love like in God, our love towards others is going to be big if our love for God is big. No more manipulation, no more trying to do it in our own attempt, trying to love, because guess what? When we try to do it in our own attempt, we not only fail, we get discouraged. Then we say, God, I don't know. This isn't going to be possible. I can't love this person. You know, we don't really have to like each other, but we're commanded to love each other. But sometimes we don't like each other because we don't spend any time together. And that's, that sometimes can't be possible and sometimes it can be. Just be reminded that when you say you may not like someone, ask yourself the question, have I even spent any time with that person? How can I not like someone or like someone if I haven't even talked to them? But I wanna challenge you, even in this church, if there's someone you just don't like, go out for lunch, go out to lunch with them and spend some time and get to know them. Hear their heart. I've learned in the past that when I do that, I actually ended up liking the person because we found that we have some things in common. So be about the community. Lastly, your conscience. We need to live in conviction and conscience. We need to depend on the Lord and live ethically with a virtuous character, unlike the false teachers. This can only happen through an abiding and residing love with God. So I challenge you, are you spending that time with the Lord and abiding in him? Are you? Or is, and, and let's be honest, I, I, I'm gonna, listen, listen, I'm gonna be transparent with you. I've got nothing to lose. I'm your brother in Christ. I've been like this lately. I'm going back to the basics. All of a sudden, I see my life doing this already. Going back to the basics. Spending quality, abiding time with God. And I know it's gonna go like this soon. Getting back to the basics and remaining there. Because the world kind of pushes me back in everything. I fall into a trap. God's saying, I want this. Because he's jealous. I can't make a difference and be an influence unless I'm here. But I know it comes quickly. It could, you know how quick it comes? Forgiveness. Ask for, just confess. All of a sudden your world's like this. See, God wants to do this. He wants to make that difference. Otherwise, it just, it doesn't. So it's important for us to keep in mind that we have to consider that. Let's take a moment and pray and ask God for this Christmas. What does he want to do? How can you and I display the invisible God in our lives? How can we display his true love, his agape love? How can we do it? We can't do it on our own strength. We need to do it in his Let's ask God to do that work in us right now. What's stopping you and I
from displaying the true invisible God, the God who loves? What's stopping us for being excited about that message? What's stopping us about making a difference in our immediate context, whether it be our neighborhood, our workplaces? What's stopping us? I challenge you in this Christmas season. There's something going on. I know there was something going on in me that needed to change. But what's going on in you? I want to challenge you to return back to your first love. To go back to the basics. Go back to spending quality time with God in his word, in prayer, abiding in him, confessing sin. That's when our influence grows. It gets greater. And then when we love each other well, we love God and we love each other well, the world's going to say, Wow, I want that love. Let this Christmas be that message for us this year. Let Christmas so shine in our hearts, be a light to the world. Father, I thank you for today. Each one of us knows we're convicted with conscience. Sometimes we, we miss the mark, but thank you for offering us your love. Thank you for always abiding in us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for teaching us to love one another. Thank you for giving us an example of the Trinity. Thank you for reminding us that we must be a community of people. Thank you, Lord, for reminding us that we must be a people of conscience so that we could live virtuously with great ethical behavior. God, we just pray that you would challenge us this year to make a difference in this season and the coming year. And Lord, as Bethlehem Church even uh, continues to move forward for a potential merge with grace, I pray that, Lord, you would make it very clear that this church can be a light for you in this community, that by loving one another well as they love you, they can reach the world and expand the kingdom of God. God, we just pray that you would do that work. And we thank you in advance to what you're already gonna do. So we love you. We surrender our lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.